Let us read uh, from Philemon, I would say chapter 1, but there is only one chapter. We'll start at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God and Father, from God our Father, sorry, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may, be, uh, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by com compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of your own uh, uh, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you uh, and be with your spirit. Amen. Good, good morning. As we uh, get ready to look at this little book, this little letter to a man named Philemon this morning. I invite you to bow your, bow your head in prayer with me here. God, I pray that uh, your word would be known this morning. We come, we gather together not to hear uh, me talk about my opinions, but we gather together to hear what you have to say to us. And I pray that you would be, um, you'd be heard despite me. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give enlightening to us. I pray that you would uh, open eyes to see and ears to hear what your word says explicitly, what your word implicates, what, what it means for us, God. And I pray that our worship of you would only be heightened and greatened in our study of your word this morning. Amen. 
Um, so we read a whole book of the Bible this morning, 25 verses, Paul's little letter to a man named Philemon. Uh, it's, to me, it's a fascinating part of Scripture. It's a kind of a bite-sized view uh, into the mind of the Apostle Paul. Most of Paul's other writings are, are letters written to groups of people, uh, to churches, like the book of Ephesians or Colossians, or, or to leaders in the church, um, like Timothy, with, with explicit direction on business matters, on church matters, on, on doctrinal instruction. But this note to Philemon reads more like a, a note jotted down to a friend, um, albeit as a, a formal note written in a different culture, in a different language, with, with different conventions, but, but a personal note nonetheless. Um, by reading it, I, I feel like we're almost getting, uh, we're almost peering into personal lives of what is going on in the early church here. Some people featured prominently in the early church even. Um, so we, we read this morning that Paul is writing this with Timothy. Um, they're, they're featured prominently. We know of uh, Luke and Mark. Sorry, did I just cut out there? We know Luke and Mark are listed as, as sending their greetings, among others, who are less familiar to us. However, some people are new to us. Um, Philemon is listed as the primary recipient of this letter, along with Apphia, uh, whom Paul and Timothy call their sister, and Archippus, and they also call him our fellow soldier. Uh, some be- believe that Apphia is Philemon's wife, while Archippus is Philemon's son. And if that's the case, then this letter is, is addressing the whole household uh, of Philemon. Another character featured prominently uh, in this short letter is, is this Onesimus. Onesimus is, by, by most commentators, believed to be a runaway slave from Philemon's house. Uh, this belief has its merit. It doesn't arise from a vacuum. There are many clues in the letter and outside the letter to suggest that this is the case. Uh, one of the clues is Onesimus literally means useless. <laughs> useful, sorry, not useless. That's, there's a distinction worth making. Useful. And it was a very common um, slave name in the Greco-Roman world. In verse 11, uh, we find Paul make a reference to this obliquely. He says, formerly he was useless, not Onesimus, useless to you, but now he is indeed useful, Onesimus, to you and to me. Uh, more than just a slave, the idea that Onesimus was at one point deemed useless to Philemon leads many commentators to believe that he had wronged Philemon in some way. He had wronged his master, and the prominent theory is that Onesimus was a runaway slave that had not merely fled from Philemon like, like a, a slave fleeing from his uh, master, but more so that he had wronged him in some way. He had stolen some money or botched a business deal or something like that, resulting in a breakdown of relationship. Uh, it's further believed that sometime after committing this offense, Onesimus seeks out Paul, as a prominent leader in the church, as an understanding, uh, maybe seeking out his mediatorship to, to mediate um, a relationship between Philemon and himself again. He seeks out Paul, and where Paul has the opportunity to preach the gospel and lead Onesimus to faith in Jesus. We make, he makes reference to 
Philemon, he's begot him as a son, like a father begotten as a son. So that's Paul's indication that he's led him to the Lord. Onesimus does actually show up one other place in Scripture, and I was just reminded by Nathan this morning. He preached through the book of Colossians. Um, so in Colossians, uh, the closing business, Colossians 4, verses 7 to 9, we read, Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. This is Paul writing. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And then here it is. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who was one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. The fact that both Colossians and Philemon are actually written by Paul and Timothy during a time when Paul is imprisoned, as it's made clear in the intro of both of these letters, um, and that the people at the end of the letters who send their greetings are very, very similar. Both lists actually are almost identical. Both contain greetings from Aristarchus, Mark, Demas, Epaphras, and Luke. Um, This has led most commentators to conclude that the little personal note to Philemon was sent along with the letter to to the church of Colossae. So that means the two letters can be considered to be a unified message of sorts. One, a general message to the whole group of people in and around the region of Colossae, and the other, a personal application of that general message, a personal note. Uh, we don't have opportunity to go through all of the major points that Nathan hit on in his series on Colossians, but this morning we're going to focus on that personal note. And there are depths to be plumbed by reading both Colossians and Philemon side by side, um, but we won't be able to get to all those depths this morning. I'm going to jump right to the meat of the letter. We're going to skip over the intro and we're going to jump right to Paul's plea. Anisimus. Uh, it's perhaps the, what we believe to perceive to be the, the impetus, the, the motivation for Paul writing this letter. He, he pleads for a, reconcilia- a reconciliation between a, a runaway slave that has wronged his master and, and then a slave owner. Verse 8 it reads, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes anything, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. 
Paul uh, starts this appeal to Philemon by invoking the, the kind of accepted knowledge that he has both the boldness and the authority to, to command obedience. And this is, not, um, this is not unconventional in that society. Other letters that have been uh, uncovered from that same time have revealed, you know, people commanding owners of slaves to even free these uh, other slaves or send them. They, have, they had authority that was set up and established in that Greco-Roman society. But Paul chooses to lay aside that authority, much like our Lord Jesus, who had all authority in heaven and on earth, but took the very nature of a servant. This, this seems to cut to the very heart of the Christian message, not demanding what is owed to you, but giving it up for love's sake. Uh, this message really is a continuation of Leighton's message last week when we looked in First Peter. It was one of submission to our governing authorities, even authorities as evil as the mad emperor Nero. Slaves were told to submit to their masters, not, not just the good masters deserving of honor, but so much more the wicked masters. The implication was that we were not called to revolt against these world systems, demanding that our human rights be honored, but rather we are called to transform these systems from the inside out, and, and that is what I believe Paul is trying to do in this letter. Paul's request is simple. Take Onesimus back. Reconcile with him. Take him back, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. Take him as a brother. Um, there are some things that are, are, are explicitly stated. Commands, prohibitions, very explicit, clear um, in Scripture. However, Scripture sometimes is silent or, or just has implications, is implicit in its demands in other things. I believe that the issue of slavery in the Bible is one of those implicit things. The overall reframing of understanding relationships, not in terms of, of personal gain and hierarchy of authority, but rather for the purposes of loving God and loving others, it results in a trajectory, a shift in worldview, where institutionalized slavery loses its power, loses its foothold. Uh, the implications of Scripture are clear. We, we can't maintain this ongoing slave-master dynamic, slave and slave-master dynamic, but, but to be genuine to the text, Nowhere in this letter does Paul command Philemon to free Onesimus. In fact, for Philemon to have responded angrily to Paul's letter by giving Onesimus his freedom, but declaring that he never wanted to set eyes on him again, would have meant certain defeat for Paul. Reconciliation was what mattered for Paul. That was the whole reason for the letter. I'm going to say that again. For, for Philemon to gotten angry with Onesimus, seen him and said, you're free, go, I don't want to see you again. Sent him back to Paul as Paul has made a, a request here. For him to have done that, if Philemon would have responded in that way, it would have saddened Paul. Paul would rather Philemon 
maintain the relationship of slave master and slave with Onesimus and be reconciled to him than him being set free. This, this means that contrary to our modern desire to have the letter to Philemon condemn the whole institution of slavery like an early church William Wilberforce, that's not what's happening here. Elsewhere, Paul joins with Peter's commands that we read last week for slaves to submit to their earthly matters, masters. Even in the letter that, that accompanied this letter to Philemon, the letter of Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart as for the Lord and not for men. In a different translation, that same command says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as if for the Lord rather than for men. So, if not to condemn institutionalized slavery, what is the primary reason for Paul's writing this letter then? I I will attempt to answer that shortly. Um, But for now, let's just be content to say that it's not about compelling Philemon's outward compliance. Outward compliance to some new Christian societal norm. For Paul, it wasn't sufficient to replace the former Greco-Roman cultural norms simply with new, better Christian ones. So long as everyone stayed in the lanes of the new, better Christian norms, uh, things would be fine. But that's not what Paul's saying. For Paul, as for Christ, external compliance to some law meant nothing without the inward compulsion of love. First, loving God, then loving others. Akin to Jesus explaining in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not enough that we just don't commit murder, we don't commit adultery, but that our hearts are rendered in such a way that even contempt or lust hidden in our hearts is perilous, it's harmful, it's destructive. For how many of us this morning do we find these demands to be so much harder, so much more unattainable, so much more burdensome? Many of us can muster up external compliance to some new societal norm. We can put on the outward appearance of grace and kindness, all the while harboring resentment, hate, lust, greed in our hearts. If making our way into God's good favor was merely a measure of outward compliance, then maybe, just maybe, some of us could make it. But it's not. I say it again, Paul's primary purpose in in writing this letter was not to plead with Philemon to set Onesimus free. Um, Although he makes some indirect references to it. In verse 8, he, say, he states that he is bold enough to do what is required. In verse 13, he expresses, Paul expresses his desire to have Onesimus at his side during his imprisonment. In verse 15, Paul suggests that the, perhaps the purpose Onesimus and Philemon were separated was that Philemon could have him back 
as much more than a servant, but as a brother. That's almost an indirect oblique reference to, have, to not having him set free, possibly. In verse 21, Paul ends with the plea that he has confidence that Philemon will do even more than he says. And many commentators believe that Paul's desire is that Philemon would set Onesimus free. But it was not Paul's desire, as we've already asserted, that he compel something resembling obedience from Philemon while emboldening and hardening Philemon's heart. So what is the main purpose of the letter? And for that, uh, we're going to turn back to the greeting. It's a short letter. Chop it up into two parts, the plea and the greeting. So we're going to tackle the greeting in verses 4 to 7 now. Titled, Philemon's Love and Faith. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul raves about Philemon's love and, and of the faith that he has toward Jesus and for all the saints. I find this point actually interesting that Paul's praising Philemon's faith, that faith that he has toward Jesus and, and for all the saints. Now, I understand what faith towards Jesus is, be belief directed toward or, or in the person and perfect work of Jesus on our behalf. However, what puzzled me on first reading was what does faith for all the saints mean? Uh, the ESV does even some contextualizing here by adding uh, the word for before all the saints because in the Greek, the exact same qualifiers are used between Lord Jesus and all the saints. So I have my NASB version, a very literal word for word translation, actually reads it more pointedly. Paul says, I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So what does that mean? Are we to have faith toward all the saints in the same fashion that we have faith toward the person and the work of Jesus on our behalf. Uh, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek is pistis. It's, it's rendered faith at times, but at other times it's, it's actually rendered faithfulness. Depending on the context is how the translators will, will interpret it. So faith is the, the belief in um, an object or a, 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 an idea and faithfulness in almost an action of living out that faith. So it's easier to imagine Paul saying it in this way, I hear of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and the love and faithfulness you have toward all the saints. It's easier to digest that because we have in our modern minds dichotomized, taken those two ideas apart, faith and faithfulness. We have said, I can believe such and such a thing, 
but not behave as if I believe it. Psychologists have even given us a, a term to describe this phenomenon. It's cognitive dissonance. It happens when our beliefs and our actions don't line up. However, for the writers of Scripture, for Paul and Timothy who wrote this, there's no difference between faith and faithfulness, belief and action. It wasn't that this idea was completely foreign to them or to that culture, as the book of James uh, carefully goes through lengths to say that the type of faith described in the Bible is the type of faith that has zero cognitive dissonance, zero discord between statement of belief and action. Uh, in this church, we, we stand on the reformed solas. You, know, you guys, the five solas of the Reformation, these battle cries, one of them is the sola fide, sola fide, the faith alone. And we believe that. We stand justified, declared righteous before God by our faith alone, not by our faith plus works. There is an unbreakable chain between justification, being declared righteous, and sanctification, God's work in us to make us holy, and ultimately the glorification that will result as we are raised to the heavens with Christ. We will be seated with him. However, it is with that understanding of faith, pistis, both the action the noun and the verb, faithfulness, the biblical equivalency of these two ideas that we can tackle what's next. I'm going to say that again. The biblical equivalency between faith, belief, and faithfulness, action, between fidelity and belief. So with that in mind, we turn to verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This idea of sharing of your faith uh, is an, another word called, that is most commonly translated fellowship. Uh, the very literal NASB version again states, I pray that the partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Partnership, fellowship, joining together, sharing of your faith. Just as there is no such thing as a passive faith, a faith that does not compel obedience, a faith that has cognitive dissonance between faith and faithfulness. So there's no such thing in Paul's mind as a passive partnership or fellowship amongst the people of faith. By compulsion and necessity, partnership, fellowship, it denotes an, an active participation in the faith. Active and dynamic, not passive or static or, or, or standing still. Early church was made up of a dynamic and eclectic group of people, some of whom we met this morning, but people from all walks of life, um, affluent people of means, 
poor, people without means. Um, Paul's writing from chains and imprisonment. All members working in participation, in fellowship, sharing one common goal. Uh, we printed out the bulletins this morning. There's some at the back there, but on the front, Rose City Baptist Church, right underneath that title, says, In Partnership for Gospel Proclamation. Kind of turned into a little vision statement for the church. However, it reads a little too lofty for some. Um, I heard a pastor this week, actually, named Ray Ortland. He, he coined a bit more of a lowbrow uh, statement that summarizes nicely the same concept. And, and he got to the point where they would repeat it so much in their church, um, in Emmanuel Church in Nashville, that they called this their, the Emmanuel Mantra. And there was three points. And they would get, almost like Alcoholics Anonymous, they would stand up and they would repeat this in the church. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. And number three, anyone can get in on this. This little mantra, this little checklist serves as a gospel reminder as to what we are joining together for. We don't come together Sunday mornings and throughout the week as a, for a nice country club get-together, patting each other on the back, telling each other how good we are. We come together um, to proclaim the gospel to one another. As the Emmanuel mantra puts it so bluntly, number one, I'm, I'm a complete idiot. There is not one time that God looks at me and thinks, wow, this Mark guy's quite an impressive specimen. No, he's the guy who can't even put on a front, um, can't even compel outward obedience. I'm not that good at putting on a front for any longer than a few minutes at a time. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. The, the word gospel simply means good news. This is not a good way or, or a moral guide to living. It is simply that, good news. My future is incredibly bright, not because I can pick up myself, dust off my knees, and, and carry myself across the finish line. I can look towards a hopeful future, an incredibly bright future, because Christ lived the perfect life I couldn't, and then died as my substitute. All the punishment owing to my idiocy was poured out on Christ on that cross. And finally, number three, anyone can get in on this. This is to be participated in. Joined with other believers, propping each other up, loving one another, forbearing one another, correcting each other encouraging one another. This is not a passive community, a passive faith, but one that is active and dynamic. That is the central theme, as best I can make sense of it, to this little letter to Philemon. Fellowship, unity in Christ, participation in Christ. This little glimpse we get into the personal affairs of, of Paul and some of the early 
church folk kind of gives us hope in that way. Many people want to know the ending of the story of Philemon and Onesimus. While we don't know with 100% certainty exactly what happened with the, the main characters of the story, we, we, do, uh, we do know that there is a character, Onesimus, who shows up as one of the first bishops in the church of Ephesus. The uh, church of Ephesus was about 80 miles away, possibly where Paul is writing this letter from during his imprisonment. And Onesimus is the bishop named right after Timothy, the same Timothy that's writing the letter. And it is believed largely that that is the same Onesimus um, to whom Paul talked about here. So, but we don't know exactly what happened immediately after. It's possible that Philemon received Paul's letter, had zero hesitation, reconciled with Onesimus, forgave him of any past wrongdoing committed, and sent him back, freeing him to be alongside Paul and Timothy. Um, however, the people of the Bible are rarely so one-dimensional. It's also possible that Philemon struggled with forgiveness. It's possible that Philemon resisted Paul's request wanting to hold on to some anger, wanting to subvert the request from Paul. It's possible that Onesimus went back to Philemon's household and served his master, only this time, instead of cheating and stealing from him, he served as if he was serving the Lord. It may have taken some time to convince Philemon that Onesimus was a brother that he did serve the unity of purpose and fellowship that Paul advocates here for in this letter. And that's my encouragement to you, church, this morning, is that is what we endeavor to do. We endeavor to, to labor together um, in the proclamation of the gospel. That unity in purpose and participation in Christ's work. That, that, that begs the question, what do we participate in? Christ's work is, is done. It is done. Christ has rescued us. Our, our role of participation is being rescued. But more, our role of participation is joining in worship of God, joining in response and and fellowship and lifting up one another to continue um, to elevate, to magnify the name of our God.